I invite you to open up your Bibles to James chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 6. James 3, 1 to 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. These words to penetrate our hearts with the reality of our tongues and our need for Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we begin a new section of the book of James. It actually goes to verse 12, but we're going to stop at verse 6 and only look at half of it this morning. Now, we have talked about this. The, the letter here of James addresses three tests of true religion. That's what the bulk of the, the chapters are about, uh, of true saving uh, of true saving faith, uh, three works, as it were, the uh, bridal tongue, care for the needy, and remaining unstained from the world, living a holy life. That's what we read in first in James 1, uh, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so those three signs, as it were, three tests. And James began actually with the second test. He, he began with care for the needy. And that's what we looked at in chapter 2. Now we will turn to the first test, a bridal tongue. Now what James is doing in chapter 2 and the first 12 verses of chapter 3 is really giving us a commentary, an explanation, a, a, a mini devotional, as it were, on Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 37. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Again, that's Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 37. Now, Jesus combines that concept of justification that we talked about previously, vindication, with the ethics of the tongue. And, and James does the same here. He spoke to us about vindication in chapter 2, and now he will deal with the use of the tongue. See, the point is, your words, according to Jesus, and now as we're looking at it at James, vindicate you or they condemn you. They display whether you are truly justified or you're just fooling yourself. How you use your tongue is a good indicator of your need of God's grace. If you're an immature Christian, maybe, and needing God's grace to grow, or not a Christian at all, needing God's grace to be saved, you, you can look at your tongue and your use of the tongue and see what it's telling you. How have I been using my tongue? 
Is there any inappropriate anger in my speech? Is there profaneness in my speech? Is, is my speech worldly? Do I mislead people? Do I lie? Do I gossip? What does your speech say about the state of your heart? You see, the, the importance of the tongue in the Christian faith cannot be overemphasized. It, I said it before, let me repeat it. I believe more harm is done in the church by the sins of the tongue than, than any other sin. And it's not that the other sins are less important or aren't as harmful. It's just that we can commit this one pretty easily. And we all do. One writer says, There is hardly a sin more pervasively exposed and condemned in Scripture than the sins of the tongue. Isaiah, he's confronted with the holiness of God, and his first reaction is, I I am a man of unclean lips. The Apostle Paul, when he's trying to explain to people that they are sinners, that no one is righteous and no one does good, he says this, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That's Romans 3, 13 to 14. And then Peter is going to talk to us about how to have a fulfilled life and a blessing from God. And he says, all who would love life and see good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. That's First Peter 3.10. The, the power of the tongue to bless or to curse is unmeasurable. And this is why James singles out teachers in verse 1. This is a verse that all pastors and preachers and teachers should be frightened of. He says, we know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Uh, See, teachers are in the speech business and are therefore more prone to fall prey to an uncontrollable tongue. And and if the tongue could be such a problem, well, you should think twice before becoming a teacher. We all struggle in that area. So, he says, our words have the power to condemn. Our, Our words have the power to bless. And that's no greater scene than in the life of a teacher. And so that is the warning to teachers, to to myself, to other preachers. But even though he singles out the teacher, it's obvious that the use of the tongue is important to everyone. And he makes that clear in verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. We all stumble in many ways. And, and, and he's get, making the point, no one's perfect this side of heaven. One day we'll stand before God perfect. But now is our, our goal is to grow in the faith. And if, and if we're going to grow in the faith, if we're going to bring our whole body under the lordship of Christ, the bridle, the whole body, James says the key to, con- to doing this is controlling our tongue. We must control our tongue. This is why the tongue is so important. If, if we lose control of our tongue, our whole Christian life begins to unravel. And so tongue control is key. And yet, James points out we have a problem. Uh, the tongue is not easily brought under submission. He gives us three problems we're going to have to deal with if we're going to learn to control our tongues. The first problem is its power. The tongue is powerful. The The second problem is the tongue is untamable. 
And the third problem is the tongue is inconsistent. And all three of these points show the vital importance of the tongue. And what we're going to do is look at the first one this week, and we're going to return next week and look at points two and three. So this week we're going to look at the power of the tongue. Uh, Although the tongue is a very small part of the body, it's capable of great evil. And and James is going to make this clear by giving us three illustrations, A, a bit, a rudder, and a spark. And all three are different in that they have one thing in common. Something small has an impact on something larger. That's the idea. And he's going to illustrate it, that the tongue is, 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 can direct the whole course of our lives. Something small can do something that great. And so he looks at the bit or bridle of the horse. Look at verse 3. That's our first illustration. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now, everybody in James' time, and, and probably people here in Lancaster as well, understand the importance of keeping a horse under control. If a horse loses control, it has the potential of great harm. Now, one of the largest horses ever recorded in history was a Belgian stallion that weighed 3,200 pounds. Now, that had a lot of strength. And that horse had a lot of power, and yet a two-pound bit in a 3,200-pound 3, horse's mouth turns that horse at will. That's the point. That's the first illustration. That little bit can direct the whole course of that large horse. Second, a ship and a rudder. It's pretty much the same imagery, a small object controlling a larger object. Look at verse 4. Look at ships also, he says, that they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And so you see the imagery here. This is an easy illustration. A ship at sea is being driven by stormy winds, and if not careful, what happens? They get off course, and who knows where they end up, or they get blown into some rocks. But the pilot, knowing the direction he wants to go, he weathers the storm, and he directs this huge ship using this very small rudder. And so you have this horse's bit and a ship's rudder. And in light of these two illustrations, James says, if you look at that, that's the tongue. Look at verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. See, what's the boast of the bit and the rudder? They're not idle boasts. They really do. They master a horse of power, and they master a large ship. And James is saying in the same way, the power and course of your life is directed by the tongue, how it plays out. Ask yourself, how must I handle all these powerful forces within me that seek to drive me into sin? There, there's a lot of, uh, of, for, of forces out there. Well, James says, you got to begin with the tongue. If you want that to happen, you, you, you need to control your tongue. And when you have control of the tongue, the power of sin within you becomes controlled. And, and then he says, well, how do I handle the storms of adversity that life blows uh, my way like wind against a ship? And he says, well, if you want to do that, you have to, you have to control the tongue. And when you have control of the tongue, the storms of life that, that seek to wreak havoc upon you from without can actually be navigated. 
Controlling the tongue is the key in dealing with inward and outward threats. If you win the battle of the tongue, you win all other battles. Now, that seems like a, a strong boast but uh, uh, for the tongue. I came across, though, an explanation by one writer that I think helps us understand why this is true. He points out that we need to remember that the tongue is much more than what we actually say out loud. See, speech is only a small percentage of the use of the tongue. And, and he explains it. He says, look, we cannot think without formulating thoughts into words. In words, we, we cannot plan without describing to ourselves step by step what we intend to do. We cannot imagine something without painting a word picture before our inward eyes. We cannot resent without fueling the fire of resentment in words addressed to ourselves. We cannot feel sorry for ourselves without listening to the self-pitying voice which tells us how much we have been wronged. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the tongue, when not controlled, is how we go from an idea of words to the execution of the idea. Or to put it more bluntly, our tongue is used to plot and carry out sin. But then he goes on to say this. If our tongue were so well under control that it refused to formulate the words of self-pity, that it refused to formulate the images of lustfulness, that it refused to formulate the thoughts of anger and resentment, then these things are cut down before they have a chance to thrive. See, tongue control, controlling your tongue deprives sin of its, of its power to function. The, the control of the tongue is more than evidence of spiritual maturity. It is that, but it, it's more than that. It's an actual means to it. That is why the beginning of verse 5 says the tongue boasts of great things. It's a great boast. It can be used to build your faith and the faith of those around you, or it can be used to destroy your life and the life of those around you. And see, that leads to our third illustration of the spark and fire. Now, I separated this one because it goes beyond the first two illustrations. The first two were passive, the rudder and the bit. They're, they're waiting to be used. But this one's active. It, it, it's a force in and of itself in its own right. He says a tiny spark can take on a, a life of its own is his point. Now, I remember this happening. When I was a kid, we used to play ice hockey a lot, and we would go down to the creek and it'd be frozen over, and we'd, you know, play ice hockey. Well, we got cold one time, so we decided we were going to start a fire. And we started with this little, you know, some paper, and then it caught on, and then it got a little bigger, then it got a little bit more out of control, and then it got really large, then we ran, um, which also kept us warm. But in either case, it, you know, it, it, was a, it, it was a controlled area, a creek area. The, the fire department came out and took care of it. It was just a little bit of paper, um, a, a few matches, some sticks, and then flames everywhere, and it caught on. And you know how it works in California. They say if you just flick an ash in California, you could start a brush fire when it's dry like that. And that's what our verse says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And then James goes on to say something startling. He doesn't say the tongue is like that fire. He says in verse 6, the tongue is a fire. 
It is a fire. And he shares four features of this fiery tongue. So our tongues are a fire. Here's the first one. The tongue is pro-world. He says it's a world of unrighteousness. Verse 6. Unrighteousness means iniquity. It means the tongue is a world of sin. It's a world of iniquity. It's the source of sin, of, of ungodly behavior. And John MacArthur says it breathes and gives vent to every sort of sinful passion and desire. It is a vile, wretched, and wicked scheme of fleshly humanness. No other body part has such a far-reaching potential for disaster and destruction than the tongue. It's anti-God, if I were to summarize it. You cannot be pro-world and, and, and pro-God at the same time. It, and so it's pro-world, therefore it's anti-God. First John says, if anyone loves the world, the, the love of the Father is not in him. And James will go on to actually say, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And an unchecked tongue is, is a friend of the world. And so, that's the first thing. It's pro-world. Second, it's influence. We saw its character. It's pro-world. It's influence. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. As we learned, the tongue is involved in all our thoughts, too, in our imagination, in our longings, our plans for our life. Left to itself, it leaves a mark of corruption. Um, It defiles every part of our being. The tongue defiles our thoughts, it defiles our plans, it defiles our desires. That's its influence, its character, its influence. Now third of the tongue, its continuance, setting on fire the entire course of life. Calvin says, you know, other vices that we struggle with are corrected by age or just by the process of time. They drop off from our lives. But from earliest to latest days, the baneful influence of the tongue remains. Only in our death will it die. On a gravestone once there was written this, Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Robert Andrew Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold his tongue. (laughs) It never ends. Until we're dead, beloved, the the tongue not only defies, defiles every part of us, of our being, but also defiles every moment of our lives. It burns its way through our life. You get that imagery. It's like an out-of-control forest fire leaving devastation and ruin. From the cradle to the grave, the tongue's evil continues. And this is no surprise given its association, and that's what we look at now, the tongue's allegiance. Its allegiance, it's set on fire by hell. Remember, the first feature was it was anti-God. Well, the last is it's pro-Satan. James' word for hell is Gehenna. It's the place of fire. It it was a valley where trash and garbage and, and the bodies of dead animals or executed criminals were dumped, and it just continually burned. And so it was an image that was fitting for hell in those days. And James is saying this. He's saying there's like these fires of Gehenna are reaching up and lighting on fire that which is most easily ignited in our sinful nature, the tongue. And the tongue is like the paper in the sticks on my creek back in my hometown. It's easily lit and it takes on a life of its own. And so the uncontrolled tongue becomes the instrument of Satan. 
Satan finds his way into your life through the tongue, and then he strikes the match. Now, last week, James talked about a demon faith, and now he talks about a satanic tongue. And we see an example of this in Matthew 16. It's Jesus and Peter having a conversation. Um, Remember, Jesus begins to tell his disciples, look, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, they're going to they're persecute me, they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to raise on the third day. And he's telling his disciples, and Peter's like, yeah, come here, Jesus, I need to talk to you. And he took him aside, and we read him in Matthew 16, 22, and, and, and he began to rebuke Jesus. And he said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He doesn't want his Savior to die, and Jesus says, yeah, you're right. I I shouldn't be so hard on myself. No. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. His words spoken were satanic. And and why did he have words that were spoken that way? Because he was setting his mind on the things of man. A demon tongue. That's the destructive power of a tongue. It can destroy everything and everyone in its verbal path. It's, it's a world of iniquity. It's, it defiles the whole body, the entire body. It, set on, it sets on fire the course of life, and it's a tool of Satan. Every time you open your mouth, every time you have the potential of causing unmanageable chaos if you're not careful. I came across a story of this. Uh, the truthfulness of this, and I think it fits it perfectly. Uh, I checked over and over to make sure it was a true story. Every indication told me it was, but it makes the point either way. It's from 1899. They used to have fake news back then, too. You had four newspaper reporters, and they were told to get a story in Denver, Colorado, and they were sent out by their respective newspapers to come up with this story, And they couldn't come up with anything. They failed, and they all found themselves together in a local bar. And they started talking about what they should do. They haven't been able to come up with this. None of them wanted to return to the office empty-handed. Well, after a few drinks, one of the writers said, I have an idea. What if we just make up a story, and then we'll all report on it? And so after careful deliberation, they decided on a story. They knew that they couldn't do a domestic story about Denver somewhere there because everybody would know about it, be able to check it out and realize. So it had to be a global thing. And then one of the men said, look, I have the idea. A group of American engineers stopping over in in our bar here en route for China, and they share with us that the Chinese government is making plans to demolish the Great Wall of China, and the engineers are bidding on the job. And one writer was a little skeptical about that. Why would they want to destroy the wall? And he said, all right, well, we'll add in there because they they want to symbolize international goodwill and they they want to open up foreign trade and tearing down the wall will will make the statement. And so they started hashing it out. And after midnight, they got their stories together and all four articles were on the cover of the four newspapers the next day. This is what the Denver Times headline read, Great Chinese Wall Doom, Peking Seeks World Trade. Well, their story was taken seriously. It, it, it made the rounds in the United States, and then it went globally. And, and then the Chinese government heard about the story, and that the Americans, in their mind, were planning on tearing down their national monument. 
And they got very angry. And some were outraged. And there was a secret society who were already concerned that something like this could happen. And they read the story. They heard the story. They were angered by that story, that lie. And they stormed into foreign embassies in Peking and slaughtered hundreds of missionaries out of revenge. Now, like I said, I read that that was a true story. But you get the point, of course. That's the power of the tongue, in this case written. Wars have literally begun and nations have fallen all because of the misuse of the tongue. And that's a terrible story, terrible story of an example. James says, though, you know what's worse? The destruction it does in the church and in our lives. It tears down others. It destroys churches. It destroys families. It destroys marriages. It destroys personal relationships. The tiny tongue is a mighty force. Well, as I said, we're going to finish looking at what James says about the tongue next week. But I want to close this week by making just a few practical suggestions um, when it comes to this. Um, first, let me just say, make sure you put safeguards in place to control your tongue. You know, before speaking, measure your words. This is true of the tongue, literally speaking, and it's also true, say, before you formulate thoughts in your mind and then put them down in an email and send it. Think about it, um, if, especially if you're angered. Um, put in safeguards. Make sure that they are in place. If what you're going to say Ask yourself, is it going to build up or is it going to tear down? These are simple. David, David said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. Psalm 39.1. Paul was careful to use the authority he had and the words that he wrote for building up and not for tearing down, he says in 2 Corinthians. And then Paul commands us, let your speech be always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so guard your tongue. Measure your words. Speak and speak those things that are gracious, that'll build up. Proverbs says, whoever guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Proverbs 21, 23. And so that's the first thing, guard your tongue. Meditate. Second, meditate upon the good things. This is what Paul told us to do in Philippians 4. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. If you fill your mind with such things, you will more likely to build up rather than tear down. This is the proactive approach. You know, before it was kind of passive, as, uh, but here, it, it, or, you know, protective, you're waiting, you're defending, here you're being proactive. My tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long, says Psalm 71, a good place to start. My tongue will sing of your word, Psalm 119. And so meditate upon the word, meditate upon the goodness of God, meditate upon all that is holy. That's a good help. Third, do not tolerate Gossip in others. Now, you shouldn't gossip yourself, but to listen to gossip and fail to speak up is sin. And it's a misuse of the tongue. If you saw somebody about to start a fire in Gippstown, New Jersey, a bunch of little kids, would you just say, well, let's see what happens? No, you would speak up. 
Stop being a fool. You're going to catch the whole woods on fire. Well, James says the tongue is a fire. And so put it out. Extinguish gossip when you hear it um, before it's too late. And so, do not tolerate gossip in yourself or in others. Fourth and finally, if you struggle with the use of your tongue, and we all do, we look to where? We look to Christ. Now, I'm going to talk more in detail about this next week. Uh, But I want to end, uh, and I can't end, without pointing out that the only way to control your tongue is by the power of the Holy Spirit. You need help of the Holy Spirit. I said it in the beginning. Let me repeat what what you're does your tongue say about you? Ask yourself, what does it say about you? And if, and if you heard this sermon and you thought about how you use your tongue, yes, we all sin with our tongue, but if, if your tongue is constantly in use to tear down rather than build up, to slander, to gossip, well, then you need to ask yourself, am I saved? And if you need to ask yourself that question, or if you're just struggling with your tongue, the answer is turn to Jesus for forgiveness. It's the beauty of our worship service. Each week we get to come in and ask God to forgive us of the use of our tongue, among other things. The tongue is like every other, the sins of the tongue are like every other thing. Christ died for them. And even this blazing fire is not beyond his ability to redeem. He, He redeems us. And so the salvation you received in Christ is meant to penetrate every area of your life, even your tongue. And according to James, it really must penetrate that area if you're going to get a control of your life. Once you've embraced Jesus' life, who always used his tongue perfectly, once you've recognized that he lived for you and died for you and that he rose for you and that he sent his Holy Spirit to reside within you, say, Lord, take my tongue, use it for good. Like I said, we'll look at more of this next week. But the problem is when we have a tongue that is being misused, we need to look to Jesus, ask his Holy Spirit to fill us and cry out with the psalmist. Here's the last words. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips. Deliver me from a deceitful tongue. Psalm 122. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. In light of these words of yours, that you would deliver us from lying lips. You would deliver us from a deceitful tongue. May the words that leave our mouth bring blessing. In Christ's name, amen.